Hello, everyone, and thank you for listening to Casual Master Quest's History of Nintendo podcast special. I am your historian host today, Tyler Vitito, and with me tonight for this special show is Kevin Austin of the PSVG Podcast Network, and more notably, of Arcadia Academia, an awesome podcast that breaks down the history of individual video games. Hello, Kevin. Hey, Tyler, man. Good to talk to you. Um, I'm surprised you remembered Arcadia Academia because I think. Oh, wait. What are you? What are you? What are you trying to say? I mean, I, I didn't know you knew about the show, but then I kind of remembered. Well, uh, what, what, what are you trying to say, Kevin? Um. Well, th- this is a history show too. So. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we're talking history. Yeah. Kevin, we, we we both have been interested in video game history, but we don't usually talk about the companies as we do the video games themselves. Yeah, usually the history of the companies isn't really, you know, special or anything to talk about. You know, they might have an interesting start, but when you think about any big name publisher or developers, it's just like video games and money. But not Nintendo. It's cards and money. Well, I mean, Tyler, there's so much more to the origins of Nintendo other than cards. Yeah, right. Don't forget the money part. Tyler, Nintendo made a unique mark on the world, man. You know why. Yeah, uh, today in the video game world, Nintendo has become one of the biggest icons for gaming. But not many know how everything came to be. You're right. What drove this Japanese company to eventually evolve into a mass media giant that we know today? Worth over a trillion, let's be honest, real dollars, American dollars. American dollars, a trillion dollars. Trillion dollars. Anyway, we hope to shed a light on the origin of Mario's Guardians and hopefully give you a glimpse of the history of Nintendo that you might not know. Mm. We want to thank you, you the listener, for giving this podcast a chance to educate you in a wonderful topic that, that has gone under the radar for the longest time. Even Nintendo, the very company we will be talking about has very little to say about its origins, mentioning its history only as far back as the Nintendo Entertainment System on their official website. Yeah, a lot of information we have gathered is not even on the internet in the English language, meaning we had to use a lot of Google Translate for a few Japanese written research projects to scrape together whatever we could find. And I mean, there was even that time I went on the dark web and I'm scared. Dark times, man, dark times. In fact, we had extreme difficulty trying to search for media pieces over Nintendo's foundation that wasn't essentially clickbait articles. I personally could only find a single podcast, a single podcast, that glossed over the bigger details in a book cover from a book, from what I can tell, doesn't actually exist. (laughs) Of course, Wikipedia and their sources served us well as a footing. Well, of course. That being said, we'll be reaching as far back as 1889, a mere 36 years after the end of Japan's centuries-long isolationism. Even further back, I imagine. Information may be scarcer to find during a turbulent time of which the Japanese government was trying to maintain control over their armies as they began to explore expansion into China. However, what we're about to do is discuss the deepest dive into the company's history than any other podcast has before, maybe even some books. Currently, the only podcast in the world to go this far, I want to shamelessly point out. Right, he finally convinces me to get on his show when now he's bragging about... Today we'll be discussing the era of Nintendo before video games, and even toys were a major priority in the company. Please understand that being a company oriented in Japan, most of the names I will say, we will say, are Japanese. And we may goof up on, much as I would love to pretend I'm fluent in the language of Nippon. Nippon. That's what I said, Nippon. No, there's no annotation at the beginning of the word Nippon. My, my, my English is terrible enough as it is, and I don't want to confuse those who are listening. Fair enough. I'm most likely not going to be perfect either. Are you ready to show the world how Nintendo really started? You bet I am. Well, let's do it.
Part 1 Fusajiro Yamauchi, the founder of Nintendo Kopai. Born on November 22nd, 1859, a man by the name of Fusajiro Fukui was the eldest son of his father. Oh, man, Tyler. <laughs> I forgot Fukui. He helped his father often as a young teen by assisting the family business of civil engineering. Kyoto was doing heavy remodeling of the entire city at that time, trying to establish durable road systems, installing electrical lights and signs to help get the city into the modern age. By the age of 13, he's adopted into the well-respected Yamauchi family clan, giving him a more known surname, and by 22 is considered the head of the household's name. Now, I want to admit here that this bit of info was hard to find and piece together and quite frankly it was hard to understand or believe because it was all in japanese and poorly translated fusajiro was born a fukui but became a yamauchi yeah we're talking the 1870s Tyler. japan at this time was rapidly moving in different directions but it's not unheard of it's a very possible thing that in this culture that a man of a lower class would earn his position in a higher ranking family by merit or by marriage but there's nothing saying why he got the spot and keep moving you're revealing plot holes uh, uh, to further explain why we're talking about the now Mr. Yamauchi, for almost two and a half centuries since 1633, almost every deck of cards of any kind were banned in Japan, as they were often used as an instrument in gambling. Mostly by the Yakuza. However, over time, a game of cards called Hanafud, or flower cards, managed to settle into the region and eventually became both socially accepted and legal to use and play. Using natural art in place of numbers, it had limited potential in gambling and gained moderate popularity, although occasionally getting decade bans by the government due to popular use. By the Yakuza. Yes, by the Yakuza. However, it wasn't until September 23rd, 1889, when Mr. Yamauchi decided to give a different style to the Hanafuda card deck. Rather than to have them handmade into bits of paper, Mr. Yamauchi would paint artwork by hand onto the back of bark taken from the Mitsumata tree, making a custom deck of his own design. I looked up the Mitsumata tree and it is not a very thick tree. It must have been either small cards or the bark was bandaged together somehow. Well, I mean, the trunks were thick enough to make whole cards, but I get your point. Anyhow, wanting to sell his new creation to the people of Kyoto, Japan, he founded a shop known as Nintendo Kopai in the section of the city called Ninomiya Town. Nice. So, Fusajiro Yamauchi, a man of artistic talent and strong business sense, wanted to corner the Japanese market for Hanafuda or flower cards and brand them under N Nintendo? Nintendo Kopai in 1889, yeah. He sounds like the hallmark of playing cards. Well, I mean, Tyler, Hallmark didn't exist until 1910 and didn't have any dealings with the Yakuza, but I, I see where you're going. Kevin, the Yakuza tie-in with Nintendo's original product of anti-gambling special edition playing cards might be entertaining, but the fact is there's just not enough evidence to support that theory. You just need to believe. So the Nintendo name now exists. The name we all are very well versed with can be directly translated in allusion to the phrase, leave luck to heaven. However, the company has neither confirmed nor denied if Mr. Yamau had meant for his company's name to have any such meaning. Did they ever deny or confirm their tie-ins with the Yakuza? Fine. History time continues. Despite the frequent stagnation of the Hanafuda card games, Mr. Yamauchi's art style swiftly became very popular amongst the locals beyond uh, within a few short years, creating a demand so great that he had to hire a team of workers to help keep up with the demand. One source said he hired just one person at first and more later. Another source said that he hired a bunch all at once. The media, I swear. 
Uh, fake news. During this time, Mr. Yamauchi, a thinking man looking to spur his business even more, made a deal with major tobacco distributor Mirai Yoshihiro by attaching a prize card with every pack of tobacco sold in Japan. This created a well-known label for Nintendo and by extension, Mr. Yamauchi. And unable to make them by hand and keep up with the customer base in 1907, he would have to resort to mass producing the Hanafuda decks as well as introducing the Western playing decks. I'm willing to venture a guess and say this is where he began hiring a bigger team. More than likely. Just imagine, Nintendo's first partner in spreading their product was a tobacco company. It's definitely not something a video game company targeting children and young adults nowadays would want to have mentioned. And to defend him though, Mr. Yamauchi was not thinking of children at the time, and something like dealing with tobacco companies for advertising back then wasn't really anything out of the norm. Alright, so we might be taken out of the context a little bit. Over the next two decades, Mr. Yamauchi, now with a wife and daughter, has grown a business from a local shop to a large major corporation, offering dozens of different kinds of card games by Nintendo, who around this time dropped a Kopai from its name. Satisfied with his work, but without a son to take on his company, as was the tradition of family business, Mr. Yamauchi needed to decide soon on his fate. Being in his mid-60s in the 1920s, he was ripe for retirement, but couldn't give up or sell off the legacy he worked so hard on for the last 30 years. He eventually decided that his son-in-law, Sekiro Kaneda, who married his only daughter, would be a worthy suitor to the Nintendo Kopai legacy. And after being sworn into the Yamauchi family and giving up his own family surname, Sekiro took over Nintendo in 1929, leaving Mr. Yamauchi, now 70, to finally retire and step away from the family business. Mr. Yamauchi would forever leave Nintendo's hands to his son-in-law until his own death 11 years later in 1940, having suffered a stroke, not related to tobacco. No, definitely not. Never. Or the Yakuza. Or the Yakuza. Despite being the original founder of Nintendo, not much more can be found about Mr. Yamauchi's personal life beyond his family's underlying connections to the makings of the roads of Kyoto. Or the Yakuza, as Kevin keeps pointing out, still maintaining their baseless rumors. However, his most notable public accomplishment is more than satisfying enough in that Nintendo now exists. Part 2. Sekiryo Yamauchi, the second CEO of Nintendo. So, Grand Historian of Nintendo, mm -hmm. please tell us about the second president of Nintendo. We will both do it, my friend. Sekiryo Kaneda, now Sekiryo Yamauchi, by the time he officially inherits his position as CEO of Nintendo in 1929 keeps the business profitable and well afloat, fighting off the shockwaves of the market crashes in the United States leading to flatlining stock prices. Beyond this, Nintendo goes under the radar for any astounding developments for the next couple of decades, trying to prepare for a possible joint business ventures by rebranding as Yamauchi Nintendo and Co. in 1934. After the slow recovery of the aftermath of World War II, Nintendo's been developing their own distributions company starting in 1947. What do you think Nintendo was like during the war? I would imagine that their product received a slight boon with soldiers heading overseas in need of transportable entertainment and from the occupation of American soldiers around the same time. However, the same problem that plagues Akira's father-in-law, the original owner of Nintendo, Mr. Yamuch, has now returned decades later to continue the complications of tradition. His children were all daughters. We know how that goes. And he didn't want to have a bigger family than he already did. His family should be Nintendo at this point. Who needs children? That's true, but that's not how it works, Tyler, especially in the 1940s in Japan. Seriously, though, does he sell the company once he retires? 
His wife, the daughter of the company's founder, would surely be ready to strangle him if he suggested even mm. doing that. Uh, another child would take way too long to prepare for his succession, and he lived in an era where women were never considered equals in the business industry. He will soon be forced to make a prompt decision in 1949 where he suffers a crippling stroke. Wait, this happens again? Both presidents of Nintendo pass away from a stroke? Well, he didn't pass on immediately, no, and it has nothing to do with the Yakuza. No, no, Yakuza or the tobacco. That's right. In his last bits of time, Sekiro would have been more than happy to have his son-in-law take over the company, but there was a huge issue with this happening. And what would that issue be, Tyler? The son-in-law could have been third in line, abandoned the family, and scampered off into the unknowns of Japan. There's no traces of him anywhere beyond the fact that he let Sekiro's daughter and grandson face the life of Japan alone. Wow. Just imagine what could have happened if this unknown character, who as far as we're concerned, never graced history books, has chosen to stay with his family and take over what will eventually be one of the biggest entertainment businesses to date. Things could have gone drastically differently, you're right. They could have become a construction company by the time he had let go of his position or driven into bankruptcy. Or maybe it wouldn't have changed much at all, really, because the eventuality present seat would have gone to Sekiro's grandson, presumably. You're right. Kiru, desperate to choose his successor, frantically begged his grandson to take over. His name is Hirosh Yamauchi. He was about 23 years old at the time. A short time later, Sekiro Yamauchi died from complications of his stroke, and the mantle of Nintendo truly rested on the young and ambitious Hiroshi's shoulder, where he would lead Nintendo on a dream voyage that would take him 53 years. 53 years as the head of Nintendo company. Holy moly. I personally believe no person should be the head of the company for that long, family-owned or otherwise. Why is that? He might have had a team of people who helped over time, potentially. The idea that would have been approved by him. People's ideology stagnate with time, and, and I would have preferred that he passed on the baton a lot sooner than that. I guess that's fair. You, you think about people over time, if they have an opinion, it stays that same way. But this is an entertainment industry we're talking about, which changes over time. So if he didn't move with that, yeah, I guess you're right. It probably would have been better to hand it off sooner. I mean... It's true that he definitely, you know, he went with the times eventually when the, you know, in the 80s when the Nintendo Entertainment System became a thing, but I, I could only imagine that it took him almost 40 years to reach that stage. Right. Well, next on to the history of Nintendo and the face of Nintendo's advancement into video game history, we have Hiroshi Yamauchi. Part 3. Hiroshi Yamauchi, the third CEO of Nintendo. Kevin, please start us on the tale of Hiroshi Yamauchi. Certainly. Mr. Hiroshi was born in Kyoto, Japan in September 7th, 1927 and lived a tenured and educated childhood having gone to prep school. He wanted to study law or engineering during late high school and college, but these plans would soon be cut short uh, by a little thing known as World War II. He wanted to assist in the war effort directly, but was too young to be enlisted. Instead, worked in a military factory. When the war was over in 1945, Hiroshi took on law to study in Waseda University and soon met the woman he would marry, Michiko Inaba. With his father completely out of the picture, his grandmother and grandfather, Sekiro Yamauchi, managed the wedding. It's interesting to see how this mystery man that left the family can affect so many lives at this point in the history lesson. It does make sense, though, considering how the family oriented the Yamauchi and Nintendo were. Want to take it from here? Yeah, sure. Once he became the president of Nintendo, Yamauchi took the distribution company Marufuku Co. Limited and named it the Nintendo Playing Card Limited 
1951, and soon after became the first business in Japan to introduce playing cards made from plastic. That's an impressive feat. Nintendo, first champion of modern-day playing cards in Japan. Who would have thought that the makers of the Game Boy would have been so prominent back in the 1950s? Oh, yeah. But it wasn't exactly all cruises and tiki drinks for Nintendo. Business was staying moderately strong, but began plateauing in the 1950s. Yamauchi wanted to explore the horizon that is the future of his company, took the step across the Pacific Ocean to the United States. Wanting to visit the world's leading company of the playing card business, the United States Playing Card Company, aptly named, he discovered a most devastating blow to his view of the playing card business. This gigantic, famous company in charge of playing cards in the U.S. at a world headquarters the size of a small office. Oh, back up. Okay. The biggest company in charge of playing cards and Nintendo's biggest adversary internationally. Yes. Had a headquarters the size of like a studio apartment. If that. That's nuts. Yeah, very much so. Yamauchi realized that no matter how expansive he was with his company for the playing card industry, hard limitations were being set on him and he would know he would eventually have to make a pilgrimage to the new style of business for Nintendo. All in good time. All in good time. Hiroshi was a challenging character for the head supervisors over at Nintendo, though. Yes, he was. He was a strict man even at 23, rarely smiling or willing to chuckle at a joke. And not even just that. When he was first named president of the company, many people took conflict that the chief of staff was decades under him and openly complained about him. Well, we know he lasted for 53 years in the job, so he obviously did something, right? Yeah, that's one way of viewing it. If he outright fired any person who lodged a complaint in his personal direction. Oh, oh. Yeah. The opening mantras he imposed once he took over were more or less the open secrets of the bigger industries. He did not tolerate any opposition in his workforce, nor did he allow any product to leave Nintendo without his personal approval. Hiroshi was definitely the authoritarian type. And it takes the old Nintendo seal of approval to a new level. <laughs> Definitely not the kind of person you would think would be okay with running a corporation based on a fun with a friendly approach. So what was Hiroshi's first big step for the uprising of a new Nintendo? I am so glad you asked that. Yamuchi resolved for a new way to help increase business by extending a hand to one of the biggest entertainment companies in the world. One of my favorites, Disney. Disney. Have Having a strong playing card territory settled in Japan, Nintendo made a deal with Disney in 1959 to have their Disney characters on Nintendo's playing cards, uh, which has since evolved into a wide variety of platforms beyond the original Hanafuda decks. Even to this day, the old decks, having still felt strong ties and influences to gambling in the Yakuza, earned it unwarranted distrust by children-focused families. With the deal in place, however, the decks were soon replaced by pictures of Mickey, Donald, and Goofy on them. Cartoonish playbooks showed the different fun games families could play with both the parents and the children, and the joint venture between Disney and Nintendo made a huge commercial success, selling over 600,000 card packs in a single year. Man, that is crazy by 1950 standards, especially in Japan, over half a million. With a few years of selling limited edition packs and using different variety of Disney characters to make their revolutionized card games more colorful and entertaining, Nintendo soon elevated in the profits. So well, in fact, that in 1962, Yamauchi decided to make what would be one of the biggest leaps in the business since Nintendo's creation. He made Nintendo into a publicly traded company. The company was listed in the Osaka Stock Exchange second division that year. It's amazing Nintendo was able to do so well in a single trade as a private business for over 70 years. It also makes me wonder what Nintendo would have been like if it stayed private all this time. 
I would venture a guess and say that would made newer card games until it became unprofitable, sold off the business, whether that be in years or decades time. True. But the future of Nintendo in the 60s were far away from your neighborhood's favorite card company. Absolutely. The wonkiest period of Nintendo we have covered so far, with the birth of a publicly owned Nintendo now rising in both profits and influence, Yamauchi took Nintendo-owned distributor known as Nintendo Playing Card Co. Limited and renamed it in 1963 to simply Nintendo. Yamauchi, now the CEO with overwhelmingly large amounts of capital investment coming in from previous deals and stock purchases, tried to shoot for the stars and find Nintendo's new future, having saw what will happen to his company should he continue the business of playing card manufacturing get your popcorn folks because things are going to get a little wild here that's right the first was a taxi company a taxi company <laughs> which was immediately shaky with an unbellished business plan and swiftly crumbled thanks to fierce quarrels between the naive company and labor unions hired to drive the cars nintendo hired union workers for taxi cab drivers but forgot to make a plan to run the branch as well as to pay the employees properly nice yeah, sounds about right. Uh, next were Baby Swings, though, which did not fail due to design so much of the mediocre quality that would hardly compare to their competitors. Nintendo would have to try much harder than that. I would like to see the Labo Labo design for their Baby Swings. <laughs> Me too. Still sounding like Hiroshi, the strict man who wanted everything top of the quality, signed off on Baby Swings. Take it away, Tyler. All right. Ballpoint pens a la Bic and instant rice outlets soon became Yamauchi's driving points. But small-scale pen distribution didn't really make the work profitable over the cost of business. And most Japanese people were heavily satisfied with the brands of instant rice already. In regards to the pens, the business could have gone well if they had a larger distribution range and buyer base, but the penny to the dollar formula just didn't work on a smaller scale. As for the rice though? And Nintendo could offer their rice today, but in the end, I just need good old Uncle Ben's. Fair enough. Try the tanker into the toy industry, which they will eventually become famous for. Nintendo develops and releases a building block toy set of different colors and varieties. Looking awfully similar to, you guessed it, Legos. Unsurprisingly, the Lego company launched an instant lawsuit against Nintendo for their clear plagiarism of the building blocks they had copyrighted years before. I'd also like to point out that Nintendo was also bragging that their stuff was much better than Legos, apparently. The lawsuit crumbled thanks to Nintendo's NMB blocks, which they are called, having different shapes and sized building blocks. The toy set appears to not have lasted long thanks to the pieces having difficulty fitting together. This little bit of history, though, is another fun tidbit that people don't know all that much about, surprisingly. Fun fact to a fun fact, the boy that's on the playbook with the original box is Hiroshi's son. Did not know that. That's, that's why I told you. Okay, Brain, tell me another fun fact about Nintendo. They also supposedly made a vacuum. Not the, the one Luigi had, but, you know. But there's not really any of the further details exist beyond the fact that it was called Chiritori, and it is featured in a WarioWare game. You would think that somebody, especially Nintendo, would have found a way to turn a vacuum into a toy of some sort. I mean, vacuums then would have been like really loud, which would have been bad for kids hearing and a nightmare for the parents who had to listen to it all day. Anyway, finally, the, and most interestingly from a Nintendo historian standpoint, highlight of this episode by far, mark it here. Yamauchi decided to have Nintendo build and sponsor a love hotel, Ooh. which is a Japanese related business phenomenon. Oh, Kevin, what are these love hotels? Um, mm -hmm. do, do I have to be the one? You know, the more mature one between the two of us, so I'd recommend it. <sighs> Fine. Love hotels, which are essentially rooms rented for the hour or two for the occupants to have some uh, sexual gratification. Or business, depending on the situation. Eh, eh? Tyler. 
you're right your court these love hotels were not exactly the most uh hygienic or well-kept buildings in japan leaving disease and sickness an easy oasis to build while customers are fulfilling their karmic pleasures if you will had the love hotels made many civil and cleansing advancements perhaps the nintendo we know and love today would be of the romantic kind alas this business venture too had failed just imagine kevin the nintendo entertainment system could have been a very different kind of toy. Oh, God. Tyler, grow up. <laughs> Today's Nintendo. Savvy to not disgusting anything that isn't either modern day or directly beneficial to their stock prices. Refuses. Absolutely refuses to make comments or mentions to any of these previous attempts to cultivate business. And probably for good reason. For five years, Yamauchi was trying so hard to shoot for the stars. Only well, to have some small toy business success alongside their playing card front being upheld. With the Olympics being held in Tokyo in 1964, playing cards hit another boost in popularity and sales, but it would not be enough. That's true. Dark days lie ahead for Nintendo at this point. With people finally tired of the same old card decks of the past five years, Nintendo had finally reached the hard plateau Yamauchi knew and feared. Stock dropped from 900 yen to 60 yen, which is about 9 American dollars to 60 cents. This would be one of the first of Nintendo's economic slumps and the first to test Yamauchi's perseverance as he searches for the future that he so desperately needed for Nintendo to survive. It was not until 1965 when the winds of change blew in his favor, when he hires a man by the name of Gunpei Yokoi as a maintenance engineer for the assembly line. Yokoi, well-trained in repairing machines as he was, would soon offer a chance of hope in a way that Yamauchi would have never dreamed of. In the next episode, should people be interested, we will discuss the continued mixed path of Nintendo as Hiroshi Yamauchi shoppers the way of his company's future into the toy industry with the help of Gunpei Yokoi. Would you say that it's uh, Yokoi Watch? Oh. Anyway, together they will start Nintendo's big claim to fame as technology rapidly advances, giving a company a chance to shine that few companies could match during that era. Again, I would like to thank anyone who listens to this, as this podcast episode took more studying and sleuthing than we could have ever imagined. I hope to hear his support and trying to find out more about the big N, and perhaps, if this is popular enough, other companies for the video game industry. I am your Nintendo historian, Tyler Vitito, and can be found personally on Twitter at two times Tyler, all letters and no spaces. And I, of course, am Kevin Austin, and you can find me on Twitter at PSVG Kevin. Casual Master Quest does a regular video game discussion podcast, and our work can be found on Twitter at MasterQuestPod. Kevin's Place of Video Games does a lot of shows on video games and can be found on Twitter at PSVG. Thank you once more for listening, and we can't wait to talk to you next time. And remember, boys and girls, never stop gaming. And don't forget to never stop the grind. Wait a minute. I know, I know. I didn't come up with it, I swear. <laughs> <laughs>